This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another week of the Company Cars podcast. Just before everybody departed their home offices for their living room last week, the press began talking about this huge rumor about a new company in the car business. These rumors indicate that Apple wants to enter the car business in 2024 with a self-driving electric car that'll compete with Tesla. This rumor reminded me of the massive state of disruption underway in the automotive business right now. And this massive disruption has led to a lot of interesting new business ideas and concepts. Today on the podcast, we'll talk about one of these disruptions, the idea of mobility as a service, or MAS. And we'll also talk about a few viewer questions that have come in since our last episode. Jumping right in, we'll first talk about what is MAS anyway? So what is mobility as a service? The general idea of mobility as a service comes from the software industry, which has sold software as a service for years. And the premise is that we should think about cars as transportation or mobility from point A to point B. And what consumers actually want from their cars is not physical lumps of steel, rubber, and glass, but instead the service the car provides, the ability to go from one destination to another safely and reliably. Mobility as a service suggests that instead of buying and owning a car for transportation, consumers would be willing to pay for just the transportation or mobility we're using. Sort of like how over the years, we have gone from predominantly owning CDs and cassettes to subscribing to Spotify, a company that provides us with access to music when we want it in exchange for a monthly fee. The idea of mobility as a service is that we can offer the benefit of car ownership, so the ability to get from point A to point B, as a Spotify-type subscription instead, where we pay for what we use instead of having to incur this massive upfront cost to buy and maintain a car. The basic idea behind mobility as a service is that as consumers, we should only pay for the transportation we use, and owning a car is an incredibly inefficient way to pay for transportation. Cars have incredibly low utilization, or how much of our car's existence are spent being used versus being parked and waiting for us to use them. So a 2016 analysis noted that cars are parked and waiting for us to use them about 95% of the time, which means the majority of its life is just spent sitting around and waiting. And if we had a professional fleet manager who could coordinate all of our uses, then maybe we can use each individual car for a greater percentage of its life. And so this idea comes from the premise that if we can optimize our utilization of cars by pooling our cars together, we can increase the utilization, similar to how airlines do this. So for example, airplanes have an average utilization rate of 40%, because airlines spend a lot of time optimizing their schedule, coordinating their network, and planning out where planes will be and when to squeeze as much utilization out of these planes as possible. And so the idea behind mobility as a service is that as consumers, we should only pay for the transportation we use. And as consumers, we can pay less as a group than if we each owned a car. And so professional fleet managers can optimize the number of cars, the mix of cars, when to do repairs and maintenance, and how to pay for insurance. By centralizing these functions inside a professional company, instead of leaving each of these decisions to each individual consumer. 
So what does mobility as a service look like in the real world? So in the real world, mobility as a service has taken the shape of many forms. So transportation has both a fixed cost component and a variable cost component. And different companies are imagining mobility as a service with different combinations of fixed and variable cost to consumers. So if you can imagine like a spectrum where on one end of the spectrum, you have a mobility service that is entirely variable cost, where you only pay for what you use. So this is like Uber or Lyft. And you have the other end of the spectrum where transportation and mobility is completely fixed cost. So this would be, say, owning a car. And there's all sorts of companies in between Uber, Lyft, and owning a car that are trying to offer different combinations of pricing to meet all sorts of different preferences for mobility. And in between Uber, Lyft, and owning a car, from most variable cost to most fixed cost, on a spectrum, we have car sharing, so car-to-go or zip car, where you pay to rent a car by the minute or by the hour. Then we have traditional car rental, like Hertz or Avis, where you pay to rent a car by the day. Then we have fractional car leasing, where you commit to a certain number of days a month that you plan to use a car. So this is like a company called Upshift would be a good example of this. Then the next tier up are monthly car subscriptions, which are similar to Spotify for cars or Netflix for cars. So this would be ideas like Hertz My Car or Book by Cadillac. And further along the fixed cost continuum, we have flexible car leasing. So it's a traditional car lease, but you can break it after a certain amount of time. So this would be, say, Care by Volvo. And then now we're starting to move into the more traditional leases and then closer and closer to ownership. In addition to all of these models, some companies are experimenting with subscriptions to individual features inside the car. So for example, Tesla plans to roll out a subscription feature for its full self-driving plan. So if you don't want to spend the $10,000 to own it, you can pay, say, X dollars a month or X dollars a trip to use the full self-driving capabilities of your Tesla. Similarly, GM plans to make its Super Cruise technology a subscription service where you can pay per month or per mile that you use the Super Cruise technology. And also, some automakers are experimenting with making things like heated seats or Apple CarPlay a subscription feature. And so these are things where if you wanted to use Apple CarPlay past the first year, you might have to pay Y dollars a month to use it. And so there's all sorts of different ways that automakers and companies are experimenting with subscription models. And it'll be really interesting to see which of these concepts stick and which ones kind of fall by the wayside. And that's important to remember is that automakers and other companies are experimenting with different concepts. And so there's so many different permutations of things that companies are offering because all of these companies are trying to learn what consumers are willing to pay for and what consumers want and don't want from a mobility as a service service. So some of these concepts have come and gone without much fanfare because these companies are just trying to collect data on what works. So for example, Car2Go, for, which was a car sharing concept, they closed their US operations very suddenly in 2019 and 2020, just before the pandemic, because the business wasn't doing as well as they had hoped, and they had kind of already accomplished what they wanted to accomplish with Car2Go, which was to collect a lot of data on how millennials and 
young professionals use cars in major urban areas. And so they got what they wanted, and so they closed it down. And that's important to remember that automakers are just experimenting with mobility as a service. And not just automakers, but the technology companies in this space too. People aren't really sure what consumers are willing or not willing to consider in this area. And so companies are just trying all sorts of different things to see what sticks. For example, Daimler-Benz, the parent company of Mercedes-Benz, offered this service called Car2Go, which was renting these small smart cars and Mercedes cars by the hour in major urban areas. And so the idea was you can borrow a car when you need it, and then you can just drop it off when you get to your destination and not have to worry about it. But Car2Go closed really suddenly in 2019 and 2020. I used Car2Go in Austin sometimes to get around. And the key was Daimler got what they wanted out of Car2Go. So the experiment was never intended to make money. Daimler just wanted to understand how young urban professionals in major cities were using cars to get around the city. And this was something that they didn't have a lot of visibility into because this group traditionally wasn't a Mercedes-Benz shopper. And they didn't really have the opportunity to talk to this group until they tried out Car2Go. And so they were able to collect all the data they needed. And even though Car2Go never made money, they learned a lot from the experience and they'll be able to integrate that knowledge into whatever concept comes next. And so even though Car2Go is gone, it doesn't mean that we won't see some of its ideas come back in the future. It's just that Daimler was experimenting and they got what they needed and so they're moving on. So because everybody's experimenting, I wouldn't be surprised to see ideas come and go over the next few years as companies refine what consumers actually want from a mobility as a service service. So it's a shifting landscape and we'll see a lot of change over the next few years and it'll be a really exciting space to watch. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of Integrated Derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. With all of this experimentation going on, you might be wondering why automakers are so interested in mobility as a service and so excited about trying many different things and learning about this idea. And in general, automakers are especially interested in mobility as a service because the economics behind car ownership are becoming increasingly challenging and difficult, especially in big cities. So cars are getting more and more expensive with time. The average new car now sells for close to $39,000, and vehicle prices are starting to rise faster than incomes over the past decade. So cars as a percentage of household income appear to be getting more expensive. Additionally, automakers are really worried that younger drivers, especially millennials and Generation Z drivers, are less interested in driving in general and have far fewer financial resources to support car ownership than other generations. These two groups also tend to live in cities where car ownership is structurally less attractive to begin with, like San Francisco and New York, 
And it kind of creates this perfect storm where these groups are maybe not that interested in owning a car. And automakers want to make sure that they stay relevant to these two groups of consumers, especially as they become the dominant consumers in the marketplace as baby boomers age out. So the mobility as a service framework allows automakers to engage with these consumers on a recurring basis because of the monthly subscription structure of most of these programs. But the mobility as a service framework also allows automakers to collect really good data about driving and usage patterns, especially for millennials and Generation Z drivers that otherwise would be very difficult for automakers to collect. So automakers can take this data to improve the design of new cars and learn about how driving habits are changing over time for different groups of people. So these mobility as a service programs are also a data gathering exercise, regardless of how well they do on a financial basis, the automakers collect great data about how cars are being used. Also, mobility as a service frameworks allow automakers to have more engagement with the driver because you're talking with this consumer constantly as they're subscribing every month and they're getting in and out of your cars every month. And this is really important for loyalty, retention, and customer engagement. So even if a millennial or a Generation Z driver isn't buying a car today, if they were a subscriber to your mobility as a service product, then they're probably more likely to consider your product in the future when they do become a vehicle owner. So right now, customer ownership and leasing don't generate a lot of consumer touch points for the automaker, and mobility as a service presents a way to increase these touch points that automakers have with drivers. But just talking about automakers ignores some of the companies that are involved in mobility as a service, like Uber and Lyft, who are technology companies. And so other companies, especially technology companies, are also interested in mobility as a service for a couple of reasons. A lot of people see mobility as a service as a way to correct this massive market inefficiency because cars are so poorly utilized. If you can somehow improve the utilization of cars, there could be a lot of profit on the table from helping everybody use their cars more efficiently. Also, mobility as a service represents this unique opportunity to disrupt an, an industry. So Silicon Valley has disrupted cell phones, music, movies, and automotive has been largely untouched until Tesla came along in the late 2000s. And so now, especially as the technology is advancing in self-driving and electric, there's this unique opportunity that technology companies see to disrupt vehicle ownership as we know it. And finally, mobility as a service plays into the strengths of existing technology companies because it requires a lot of touch points with the consumer, a really strong consumer interface, and a really sophisticated fleet management and data management system. And these are all things that technology companies can do really well at. And so that's why mobility as a service is so interesting to all these different technology companies. So what does the future look like for mobility as a service? Is it truly the way that we'll use cars in the future? Is all of our current cars going to be the last car we'll own? Well, this is a very interesting question. And I would say that the outlook for mobility as a service has changed a little bit. And if you had asked me a year ago whether your current car would be the last one you owned or maybe the next car you purchased, if you were going to buy a car in the next five years, I probably would have said yes. I think all of these companies were so excited about breaking into this space and 
improving how we use our cars and taking cars off the road for environmental reasons. But things have taken a very strange turn during 2020 for car ownership. So I'm observing this year that car ownership is making a big comeback, especially among people who previously didn't own a car. So I give a lot of advice about what car to buy and how to buy a car. And this year, I received more emails from people interested in advice on what car to buy and how to buy a car than I did in 2017, 2018, and 2019 combined. So there was definitely a run on cars this year. And with the pandemic, there's a lot of interest in having your own personal space that's not shared with anyone else. And that's something that really comes from car ownership and not so much from mobility as a service where you might be sharing a car with a couple people or having a driver drive you around in the case of Uber and Lyft. So this would suggest that the outlook for mobility as a service has kind of dimmed over the past year. But who knows what the future will hold? I think this sudden interest in car ownership is temporary and it'll dissipate as time goes by, maybe not immediately after the pandemic because a lot of people that wanted cars went out and bought cars, but certainly over the three to five years after a pandemic. So a lot of the people that I worked with this year who maybe bought their first car in several years, I'm not sure how many of them will become permanent car owners or how many of them will buy a replacement car when their current car is due to be replaced. So mobility as a service options, I think, are especially attractive to people who live in large metropolitan areas like San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles. And as cars become increasingly more autonomous and filled with technology, there's going to be something attractive about a mobility as a service type arrangement where the consumer doesn't have to think about maintenance, insurance, repairs on a car that's increasingly just a stack of computers on wheels. And so consumers will always want the latest and greatest. And I could see this turning into a cell phone type situation where you may lease a car every two years and just get a new one for some people and other people will choose to own a car and keep it for a long time. But on average, people will be owning cars for shorter and shorter periods. And that's where there's real advantages to a mobility as a service model because buying and selling cars comes with a lot of transaction costs. So I think the outlook for mobility as a service in the long term is pretty bright. Even if in the short term, it's a bit dimmed by the pandemic, and so it'll be interesting to see how autonomous and electric plays into this together, because if you have an autonomous car, then you don't have to worry about parking, because if you go somewhere, you get out of the car, presumably the car could have a system to disinfect itself, and then it can just move on to the next rider. And that way you wouldn't even need to own a car per se or lease a car, you would be much closer to an Uber Lyft model of just subscribing to a car or paying per mile that you have this autonomous car drive you around. So I think there's a lot of opportunity on the table, but it's tied to advancements in autonomous and electric vehicle technology that maybe is not eminently clear just yet. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think the future is quite bright for mobility as a service. Now it's time for listener questions. This week, we have several listener questions, so we'll dive right into them. Our first question comes from Cameron, who lives in Boulder, Colorado. And he asks, 
Why do so few SUVs have rear tailgate windows that roll down, like the one on the Toyota 4Runner? And the main reason this doesn't exist more frequently is cost. So if you want a tailgate that has the capability to retract the window into the tailgate, this adds complexity, it makes the tailgate heavier, and it makes the tailgate costlier to build. So the cost-benefit analysis would suggest that a consumer would need to be willing to pay for this functionality. And automakers work with focus groups all the time while they're designing a new product to determine what features to put in the car. And at some point, automakers probably asked focus groups if they wanted to pay extra to get this feature, and most shoppers probably said that they didn't care. The interesting thing is that this rear tailgate window rolling into the tailgate also creates a design constraint because if the rear glass isn't close to being vertical, then it becomes very difficult to roll into the tailgate. And you see a lot of SUVs out there now with really swooping rear roof lines and rear glass lines. And all of those SUVs, it would be very difficult to figure out how to retract the glass into the tailgate. And sorting out that engineering challenge is not necessarily a high priority for automotive engineering teams, unfortunately, because they're more focused on things like fuel economy, noise vibration, harshness, etc. And that's probably why it hasn't really proliferated. I think Toyota was one of the early pioneers of a retractable window in the tailgate, and it just didn't really catch on beyond select Toyota SUVs. A related phenomenon to this is the disappearance of the flip-up tailgate window. So most SUVs today have tailgate windows that are fixed in place like a minivan or a hatchback. But back in the 1990s, more SUVs came with what were called split tailgates, where the glass and the door opened separately, typically with the glass opening upwards and the tailgate opening sideways. So a really good example of this is the original Honda CRV had a tailgate like this. And over the years, manufacturers began moving to integrated tailgates that flip both the glass and the tailgate upwards instead of sideways for a variety of structural engineering, consumer preference, and cost reasons. And so once the glass and the door became integrated on the same panel, this made the glass portion of the door less interesting to consumers. And consumers began forgetting about it, and they didn't really talk about it in consumer focus groups. So when an automaker is going through and thinking about what cost can I cut out of the car, the flip open rear window becomes a really easy one to cut. Something interesting to point out here is the flip open rear window is making a comeback on at least one car. So Ford is bringing back a flip open rear tailgate window on the Bronco Sport, which is the baby Bronco, to kind of pay homage to this older idea of having an, a flip open tailgate window that was different and split from the actual metal tailgate. Our second question today comes from Tushmit, who lives in Austin, Texas. And she writes, how does one go about researching cars to buy? And how does one understand the environmental impact of their car? And these are both excellent questions. For the first question, I generally recommend a range of car shopping websites so you get information from multiple sources. And one that I recommend is consumerreports.org, especially if you have a subscription already, because they have very comprehensive ratings that stretch back a long period of time, and they have a lot of historical reliability data that they collect themselves through an annual member survey. 
Their focus is also on serving the average consumer, so they don't really have the enthusiast lens or bias that some car magazines might have, like Car and Driver or Motor Trend. Other websites that I also really like to recommend are Edmunds.com and Cars.com, especially if you don't have a subscription to Consumer Reports. So these two websites, their content is much more focused on the average shopper and not enthusiasts who may have different preferences and tastes than average shoppers. I also like Kelly Blue Book video reviews if you enjoy watching YouTube content about cars. They always have some good content about all the practicalities of a car, like can you see out of it? Can you merge on a highway? Can you carry groceries, etc.? Of course, you can always write into the show with your specific question, and we'll be happy to take your question and provide some recommendations. But these are just some resources to help you get started if you're thinking about buying a car. On your second question, the most common way to think about the environmental impact of a car is its fuel economy rating, which is typically expressed as miles per gallon. And the EPA has a website that hosts all sorts of historical and current fuel economy data on its website, which you can access at fueleconomy.gov. Another measure that you can look at is a car's greenhouse gas emissions score, which is also computed by the EPA and is typically printed on new vehicle window stickers on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the best. And these scores are always rated each year, so a score of 10 is relative to other cars that same model year, so say 2015. The EPA also publishes a smog rating from 1 to 10 that is also listed on the new vehicle window sticker and available at fueleconomy.gov. So to summarize, there are kind of three main statistics that people look at, and that is fuel economy, which is miles per gallon, a greenhouse gas emission score from the EPA from 1 to 10, and a smog rating from 1 to 10. And the EPA takes this information and labels especially environmentally friendly vehicles with its SmartWay label. So they use greenhouse gas emissions and smog emissions relative to the vehicle size class average as the measure, and the label is awarded to the top 20% cleanest and most efficient vehicles based on these two metrics. So to find a SmartWay vehicle, the EPA publishes a database that's available to the public, and it's available on fueleconomy.gov, and you can see a list of all the SmartWay certified vehicles. So that's going to wrap it up for us today. Join us again on another episode of Company Cars, where we'll explore another question about the car business. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. A special shout out to our service and maintenance intern, Get a Warranty.